Take a network break. Drew isn't bringing the virtual donuts this week because he is on leave, but fear not. We have a secret or not very secret co-host today who's bringing virtual cookies because that's how he rolls. Now, before we get into the story, let's briefly mention our sponsors for today's show. We're sponsored today by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV. Learn IT, pass your certs and get a great job. Uh, visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak for 30% off all of their training programs and use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak and use the promo code networkbreak at checkout and save 30% off all the plans. And stay tuned after we finish today for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet and we're talking about cloud risk. We're actually be talking about how Fortinet's new 40CNP SaaS offering, which collects and correlates security findings, alerts, and other data from a range of cloud-native services, analyzes the vulnerabilities, looks for cloud misconfigurations, and then tells you what might be wrong. That's where we are with this operation stuff. I think all of this AI ops stuff, this is in that sort of vein. And of course, don't forget, we've got lots of other things happening across the Packet Pushes Network, newsletters, podcasts. Uh, if you want to pick out your favorite, our co-host is heavily involved with our show around cloud infrastructure, Day 2 Cloud. Uh, so you might want to go and do a search in your favorite podcatcher for Day 2 Cloud, and you'll be able to subscribe to that show and get more information. On with the news. Uh, first of all, let's start off with some follow-up. Uh, so what we did was we started on, on the 9th of August, which was just last week, uh, we talked a few about Arista's cloud vision, and I said that it was part of a uh, big switch acquisition, of which I was uh, about 90% incorrect. I've had two people come back to me and say cloud vision existed long before the big switch acquisition, and while components of big switch might have been folded into, the general suggestion is that big switch actually turned into a visibility network. So that is, it's used for taps in the reverse direction. And Cloud Vision remains the SDM platform that Arista's going forward with. Um, so I apologize for that, my mistake. I was probably thinking of a different thing, but there you go. Uh, and we also had somebody who pointed out that Arista's cognitive unified edge includes the Untangle firewall in addition to wireless APs. He would like to think that Arista is going after Meraki and Fortinet in the SMB mid-market. Although, uh, he, he add some comments, uh, because all of your feedback is anonymous, by the way. Not very well executed and lacking cohesive messaging, but that's the plan. It's uh, a managed as a separate purpose-built purpose, purpose -built slice of cloud vision as a service tailored just for uh, cognitive unified edge. So I think, you know, apologies to Arista for getting cloud vision mixed up with Big Switch. Um, and then also some feedback on how Arista's cognified unified edge is going, which is a bit... And I think we've talked about that before. That's a bit nascent. Arista's really not throwing itself into it. I think if it wants to be taken seriously about its campus, enterprise campus, it needs to really, really get that working. But I think every time it tries to, its main data center business <laughs> spikes up. All right, let's get into the news. Uh, this one's for you, uh, Ethan. IP Infusion releases version six of its Ocnos. Do you think this is a big story? I don't know that it's a huge story, no, but it is interesting in that if you're a person who's lived in the world of iOS, Junos, EOS, that's kind of what you, you've been using. You maybe don't know that Ocnos is a thing, but yet there is Ocnos and several other uh, network operating systems that can run on white box platforms and give you a diversity of choices depending on what you're looking for in your operational stack. And that really comes down to what it's all about in my mind. If you want to change how you do operations, you're not confined to this mm -hmm. integrated model. Ocnos is one of the big winners, uh, big 
I don't know if I want to say leaders, but certainly they've got market share, Greg, in yeah, the world right. of, of white box. It's, it's a choice for a yeah, lot of Yeah, you might not have heard of it, but it's been around for a long time. They oh, were yeah. selling, yeah. they were reselling this to other companies, um, mm-hmm. Juniper, yeah. Cisco, in the low and high end, and then they were adding a flavor. These days, the arrival of Linux means that companies don't have to develop an OS, and it's really just a bunch of apps on top of Linux these days. Um, and and full whole, featured, I think, is, yeah. a, is a good mm-hmm. way to describe Oknos. I mean, it's got mm-hmm. you know a full routing stack, all kinds of capabilities up and down. Um, and they, I think their focus is on the service provider market primarily. When you look at what mm-hmm. the announcements are for Oknos 6, more bandwidth, scalable software supporting up to 4.2 terabits per second, uh, segment routing aimed at uh, the broadband aggregation application specifically, fancier L2 fault detection, switchover improvements, speed improvements for uh, for carrier Ethernet kind of environments. Uh-huh. If you're doing that layer two redundancy, you have 400 gig you can do now for carrier networks and uh, then improved data models for and they now have NetConf and open config support in Oknos 6. All of that feels very like things service providers care about yeah. more than the enterprise, unless you're a large enterprise, in yeah, which case you're kind of a service provider anyway. I don't think but, I don't think white box is a big thing in the enterprise. I think enterprises are still wanting the branded product and the branded support, and they're willing to wait and they're willing to pay for it. So. It is too hard to operationalize. So I, I agree with you. It's it's such a shift if you go that direction and the amount of roll your own that you have to do to make that work is, yep. yeah, there's cost and feature benefits there if you can make it happen, but it's still... Um, I think over time it might change. You know, as SDN platforms become... And you, well, you got, you know, uh, PK8 is trying to make it easier you know, for the enterprise yeah. to get into that world, for example. So there are folks that are understanding you know, what that ecosystem is about. Right, sure, Abstra, yeah. absolutely. Juniper Abstra yeah. doesn't, you know, will work with third-party vendors up to a certain level and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah. I haven't given up hope on Whitebox yet, Ethan. <laughs> no, it's, but, but, you know, the cost of adoption and the transition is just seems to be too steep to overcome the inertia of doing it the way we've done it for so long. Yeah, that sure. seems to be the challenge. Uh, over the last couple of shows, I've talked about uh, supply chain problems in China, and there's some news. And what I'm doing here is synthesizing, I don't, I don't know, about 250 tweets that I've consumed and around about 30 articles over the this week. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, we talked last week about the background of the China, China and Taiwan issue where the U.S. Secretary of State and there was a big political fufara, um and it's becoming more obvious to people that China's changed its political position about its engagement with the wider world. And China watchers have sort of returned to the discussion of significant financial problems inside the Chinese economy. Now, this isn't new. Uh, this type of discussion has gone on for a while, sort of highlighting the massive amounts of debt around real estate and how their economy has got some fragility. It's, it's absolutely dependent on exports. Um, and what we're actually seeing is that as the political situation changes, China is now seeing its total exports reduce and there's a sentiment turning against them and you're seeing companies starting to move their supply chains offshore, particularly to India, Vietnam and the Philippines, Mm -hmm. but lots of other places. We're seeing massive initiatives say, you know, we saw the bill, uh, the CHIPS Act, which is the US government allocating $54 worth of tax uh, subsidies away to technology companies to set up factories in the USA. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks, but it's it is a, pro, a risk here that China will not be a preferred location to manufacture technology products, not just because but because of the political situation, but also because of economic problems. If some of the political and the economic issues get in the way, China could go away. 
So what got me thinking about this is that, you know, in combined with trade sanctions and the tariffs that we've seen, if you're a large enough customer, you might want to be talking to vendors about their risk planning for a collapse in China and what are their strategies to mitigate supply chain risk. And maybe you need to get something written into your contracts to say, you know, you are, you know, as a vendor, you're taking steps. Now, this would assume that you're making big purchases and getting the right vendors, but you want to be flagging to, you know, IT vendors, Microsoft, Cisco, that they need to be out of China because there is a serious systemic risk associated with that. It gets more complicated with Taiwan as well. China Mm -hmm. making potentially military moves towards Taiwan and annexing them or reclaiming Mm -hmm. them, all depending on what political view you hold, adds complexity to this situation. Because if you say it's not just China and mainland that I'm concerned about, it's also Taiwan, where a lot of the chips come from, that Mm -hmm. exacerbates the supply chain uh, crisis, I guess, if there if if a military engagement happens you know like we are seeing with the massive world disruptions with Russia and Ukraine China and Taiwan would be a similar kind of thing but so so Greg you're saying hey have a chat with your vendor about what their supply chain looks like yeah right but boy there aren't any alternatives yet because you mentioned the chips chips act in the US for example okay well let's assume that that money comes down it's still going to take years to spin up fab and get to the point where there's actually a reliable supply chain coming out of the U.S. for certain product lines. So, you know, I I, I don't know. I don't know what those, other than signaling to your vendor that you're concerned about this and you're looking for a vendor that is getting control of their supply Mm -hmm. chain. I, I don't know what your options really are because of the way the world is (laughs) right now. Yeah, I know. I think that, and and all you can do at the moment is if you're one of those companies talking to vendors, ask the question, say, what is your plans? Tell me about how, you know, what happens if China fails? What's the impact to your business? We need to know for our strategic, you know, vision and that sort of stuff and get it on their radars that, you know, our vendors all tell us we're driven by what our customers want. We're all driven by what our customers tell us. And if you're asking that question now, there is a chance that they'll start to you know, make more moves and take it more seriously that the supply chain needs to be diversified and start now, not, you know, it after something's happened. Like we've seen so much of the Russia-Ukraine war, we're seeing the vendors make decisions long after it's happened, not before. And yet mm. here we are knowing that this is coming. So if you're in a position to ask the question, ask the question is my point. Um, and, and, then, and, and get get feedback. You're looking for feedback that planning is underway, that we're yeah. not in this situation again, as opposed to, as you were saying before, having to mm. react to an unexpected situation. Yes. You know, that the future is one where you've got options. Yeah. If you're one of those people buying 50 to 100 million and you're handshaking with the Cisco sales rep, ask the question, it's part of the deal. What are you doing to mm. diversify your supply chain? And then mm. write it into the contract that, you know, we're going to do this deal, but you made commitments around this and, but, and get that. Okay, but but there's another thing here though, because another challenge is, you know, you're saying, you know, you, if you're using one of the big vendors and you're married to that big vendor for operational reasons, maybe this is also the time that, as a company, you think, mm. why am I married to Cisco, <laughs> Juniper, Arista, whoever, so deeply? Networking's mm. networking. Can't I change my operational model and uh, skill up my staff somewhat so that I can look at different suppliers and bring their stuff in-house if I want to, which we all know, Greg, Mm. that's not that easy. That is a thing. But if you're married to a vendor who is screwed over by the supply chain crisis, 
wouldn't you want to have some other options? And if it is as quote unquote simple as yeah. uh, having your staff skill up in operations for a different platform, if that yeah, would make life better, like maybe white box, yeah. um, you know, that, that that's would, I would put that on my option. strategy and say, if this happened, that's my always option to go mm. to third party products. But I don't see you shifting to third party products proactively to get ahead of the fact that China might invade Taiwan. So, uh, but what you can do today is send a letter to your suppliers and say, what are you doing? You know, if China was to invade Taiwan, what is it that you're doing to mitigate this risk? Yeah. 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 But again, going back to if you were to try to be proactive, you know, going back to our white box part of the conversation a little earlier in the show. Gosh, that's interesting. Let's assume, yeah. and I don't know that this is true, but let's assume that my white box supply chain is is easier. So I can, and then I can load whatever NAS on top mm. of it that I want. Well, there's no supply chain problem with software. It's uh, all about that hardware. But if I can get mm -hmm. some generic uh, Broadcom box with a chip in it that does what I need and throw a NAS on it, that's um, you know whatever I want. Yeah, that can uh, get the business done. Huh? Well, and is the thing is, it can be moved. Chain? Yeah, it can be moved. For example, uh, South Korea is manufacturing chips. Uh, at scale, they've only got a certain amount yeah. of capacity, but they are one of the largest manufacturers of seven nanometer, five nanometer chips today. And yeah. they, we believe that they're already making five nanometer ahead of TSMC, not in the same volume. Uh, Japan makes a lot of chips. We're seeing a lot of assembly move from China to Vietnam and India and the Philippines. So it can be done. What we need is to make sure the vendors are doing this as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah I know. For, and I, don't, I, I keep overriding your main point. With, and that yeah, is yeah, your yeah. main point. You know, which that is, is my main uh, point. This yeah. is something that you can do proactively. I think what you're doing is saying more reactively, your switch would be to switch to some other vendor of product that you could obtain. You're based around white box principles. But, you know. Well, it, it, again, because if you look at it from the consumer perspective, if you're beholden to that vendor uh, as your supply chain, basically, mm. What can you do to shift your supply chain? Well, you can change exactly, your operational yeah. model. That's that's the point that's I'm it. making. I agree. Don't disagree. Well, let's take a break now to thank our sponsor, IT Pro TV. IT Pro TV is an online technical training to help you grow or even start your IT career. For instance, cybersecurity with more than 5,000 open cybersecurity roles. You might want to become a CyberSec Pro with online training from IT Pro TV, or maybe security isn't your thing. No problem. ITPro.tv has you covered with all sorts of courses across the IT spectrum from CompTIA, Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. There's over 5,800 hours of on-demand training. Instructors are actually recording live every day with shows going to studio to web within 24 hours. So the shows are constantly re-recorded and republished, which is pretty good. And they're all listed in a, in a unified way by category certification and job roles. So you can find what you want. You can also learn from wherever you are. So you can stream itpro.tv's courses on demand while you're having lunch on a smartphone with your even a Roku, an Apple TV, a PC, or your iOS and Android apps that do that. So you can even study in your lunch break or you know, while the boss is out playing golf or having lunch with a vendor, you could be getting your next job lined up, which I'm a big fan of. Vote for that. So learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash networkbreak for 30% off all the plans that are on the screen. Use the promo code networkbreak at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash networkbreak. Use the promo code networkbreak. And thanks to itpro.tv for supporting us. Without them, we wouldn't be here. 
Back I just to the like news. that you pronounced uh, Roku Rockio. That was that was great. I never I never read it that way before. I think that's priceless. Well, I was, isn't, well it's R O K U. Wouldn't you want to be Rock Rocky? Isn't that how it's? <laughs> I think it's I think it's Roku though. Is it not? I don't know. I don't know. I Back to the news, Rock- Greg. Uh, we have a, a Cisco disclosed a breach by the Lapsus Group. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is really an interesting one. First of all, uh, it's really good to see Cisco is. Uh, stated a policy over the last two years at Cisco Live about being open and honest with customers and about treasuring privacy. And we've seen several things where Cisco's done a good job of, you know, respecting customers' privacy. But here they're publicly disclosing uh, a breach with the Lapsus Group um, and they've described all the details. And the Talos team is actually the one that's actually publishing the details on Cisco's behalf. The Talos threat intelligence team is pretty well widely respected and trustworthy even when reporting about themselves. So Usually, I'm looking for a third party to come in and do the audit and tell me I'm willing to go with this in this case because Talos has got a pretty good reputation. Mm. Uh, the vector here was really interesting. Did you read up on this? How they found a personal account and somebody had actually saved their personal Cisco login account details in a Google Talk. And so they'd compromised that person's personal Google, found the details, and then started to use that to ring up Cisco's help desk to get an MFA reset so that they could log in. Yeah, they had, the, they had the credentials, but they needed to get past the MFA component. So yeah. they, they mm-hmm. did the uh, the social engineering to make that happen. Yeah. yeah. Apparently, they made dozens of phone calls before finally a help desk operator was uh, convinced via social engineering. And then the attacker was then able to get VPN access to Cisco. Now, Cisco says nothing serious was taken and you know there doesn't appear to be any significant breach of systems. They just downloaded data. Uh, but I noted that there were some other papers saying that up to 2.8 gigabytes of data was stolen. Yeah. So, mm, you know, let's, you know, there could be some wiggle room there. I don't know. Yeah, not a lot of data, 2.8 gigabytes. It's not like, mm. you know, a massive uh, SQL dump happened or something out of a database. Because mm. uh, even if you get in there and you get VPN access to Cisco, that's not like you got the keys to the kingdom at that point. Um, no. Still no. have to know a lot still about a, user a lot profile. to figure Did out Did they escalate? I didn't see anything saying so. like they got in and then escalated into no. some sort of privilege. I think they were just I, I didn't act. read anything about that either. No, the, the whole mm. data point was about that 2.8 gigabytes of data was stolen with whatever in it. No one's disclosed mm. what was in that. So mm. it's, it's, it, it's interesting that the hack happened at all, although it seems like Cisco was only minimally compromised at the end of the day. Yes. Uh, and as people pointed out, the defense against this is a hardware token, right? Because even if you get the MFA, you still have to have a hardware token. Mm. So the defense against lap- Lapsus is to be able to have like a Yubico key or some sort of hardware key that when you go to log in, it validates that not only is it you, but you are there at the time. And that's mm. something that a lot of people wanted to go and tell everybody about, but you know, that is actually quite challenging because issuing people lose hardware keys and you have to have a lot of them and, you know, operationally, you know, rescinding them when people lose them and all that sort of stuff becomes equally a problem in its own right. I also wanted to just draw the, it was about six months ago that Okta, which is an identity provider, a managed identity provider, they were breached and then they really badly handled what was functionally the same thing. They had and a third party. It, what, in, as far as the disclosure? Yeah, they had exactly the same thing. A third party um, support center operative in, I don't know, some very remote country. Uh, they got their login details and were able to log in and then get pictures of the screen of Okta, but they're only very limited in a sandbox. 
but Okta mishandled the announcement so badly that everybody just assumed that they were lying and that it was horrible. <laughs> and you know, uh, so uh, congrats to Cisco for getting this right and managing the story and being open so that nobody feels like there's a hidden story there or there's some secret agenda or something like that. So it is worth looking at the story for that. And there's lots of stories around. Just search on Cisco Breach and stuff, and you'll find lots of links to that. Um, another piece from Telos this week. Actually, there's a lot of news from Cisco this week, which is unusual, but it is summer. And it's a bit of a quiet time in the summer, isn't it? Hmm. So Telos is talking. Uh, released another blog post, and they're talking in this one that they believe that there's been a rise in small-time cybercrime, or they're pitching that there's a rise in small-time cybercrime. And the reason that they believe this is true because there's a drop in drug arrests and weapons felonies, um, and they think that because there's a, such a substantial drop in drug crime and weapons crime, that people are now switching criminals are switching to become cyber criminals. Oh, they're they're pivoting. Ooh. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so they I, say there have been a variety of reports that criminals are turning increasingly to cyber crime instead of traditional drug crimes with which they were commonly associated in the path. This is both a blessing and a curse. It removes a lot of violence and crime from the streets, but is adding a significant amount of pressure on law and local law enforcement. This well, is an international they're, they're problem. fishing grandma and grandpa trying to get credentials and do do mm. financial scams and, and that kind of thing. I assume that's what we mean by small-time cybercrime. Well, maybe you do a bit of a standover, you know, like walk inside their house and threaten them until they buy you a bunch of Apple gift cards and then you rush off and turn them into, you know, cash or something. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. That would be pretty much the same as the drug crime if they were actually in person. The whole uh, exciting mm. part about this to me, if I'm the uh, the enterprising criminal, would be, wait, I get some cyber skills and I can uh, sit here <laughs> in the comfort of my my evil lair and uh, and go after the bad, uh, go after people with my, my bad intent, see if I can uh, yeah. dupe them into giving me some money somehow or another. I don't know. I mean, the evidence is pretty thin though, right? They're taking one set of data from New York Police Department. And, you know, given the history of disruption to the, to the police departments in the US over the last three or four years, maybe they're just not chasing after drug dealers and weapons charges so much. Well, it's, you know, there's no how evidence much of that, that would have to do with marijuana because uh, yeah. marijuana is it's increasingly tolerated. Yeah. I mean, the the where it stands legally depends widely on where you are in America, what mm. you're, what city you're in, what county you're in, what state, and so on. So, but if you've stopped as a police department enforcing marijuana-related crimes, that I think could certainly contribute to this uh, this graph. Yeah, that's what I mean, at, Greg. But uh, you that can draw the conclusion the from the data. Drug arrests. Yeah, yeah. But the data is pretty thin. Like, there's plenty of other reasons why that data might be the way it is. You well, know, did like, they mention some why, what the reason is why mm. they believe cybercrime is what folks are pivoting to? No, is that just anecdotal? No, because I don't nothing. see any anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's really a, a Forbes article, like Forbes, which is the least convincing uh, website. Mm. Uh, for me, I'm not a big fan of Forbes, and you can basically buy your way to get a piece placed on Forbes. So. Um, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and there, there, you know, I would believe that it would be much more likely that a new class of criminals would emerge who knew how to do cybercrime mm. than somebody who's used to doing drugs and weapons charges would be able to reskill and adapt their business process to become cyber uh, criminals. Honestly, okay, okay. Well, let me let me let me add an anecdote there. It does feel like you know phishing is is never going away, and if anything, it's on mm. the rise. I had one make it through the Google filters into my inbox yesterday, which looked like a very legit m email from PayPal, 
it, and I actually tweeted about this, the it, the fonts were right. The logos were in the right place. It was laid out in the right way. The footer read correctly that, hey, we saw you were trying to get into your PayPal account and you couldn't, you know, click here if you need to reset your password, all that stuff. And if you hover over the links, it's not going to anything that's a PayPal property. You know, the domain names would suggest PayPal, but no, not PayPal stuff. And I had not mm. had any trouble getting into my PayPal account <laughs> recently. So clearly it was a phishing attempt, yes. but it would one that easily you could have been fooled by. So presumably you click through and you go to some form and they capture your username and password and then you're screwed. Uh, at that point. Well, if that stuff's still happening and that stuff can still make it through the Google filters where you're faced with uh, a, a phishing attempt, how much mm. skill do you need to pull that off? I'm going to quite a bit. There's, there, there's, but I think more importantly, some, the transition. Some, there's going to be kits out there that enable that stuff. So if you're willing to pay someone to supply you with a bit of software and to get you started, you know, you're, that's part of your startup costs right there. You know, yeah. an angel investor would uh, get you going. <laughs> Yeah, but my point is, is that if you're, my point would be is that if you're used to doing drug deals and drug yeah. running and, and, you know, and carrying we and weapons things to rob corner shops, that's not a very transferable skill into cybercrime. Yeah. Yeah. The pivot <laughs> would be a pivot too far. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's, 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 that's probably highly, So anyway, I just wanted to question, just say like, this one feels like a marketing piece that got out of control. And somebody didn't didn't sort of vet that too hard. It really does. While I don't disagree that a rise in small crime, cybercrime, instead of like, you know, the massive headlines and all the things that we've seen in the past is probably a, going to be a problem. I'm not necessarily sure the evidence here sustains the argument. Uh, well, you just brought something together for me. It, it, yeah. I, it's all right here in the headlines and the graphics that we're looking at as we chat about this. But this comes mm. from a source by the Talos Group, which would have an interest in selling more security mm. stuff and so if there there's an increase in cybercrime, i guess we can you know you got to buy our security stuff to protect against yeah. this rise in small time criminals pivoting to cyber <laughs> and but it's also right that most smaller companies are not well prepared to handle cybercrime. so yeah don't uh, know and maybe is, even don't want to yeah so it's kind of lying point. while telling the truth is kind of what i yeah. what i sort of thought about this yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on to another cisco story cisco's restructuring its enterprise business units once again uh, for those of you who remember, Cisco was once a diverse number of business units all competing with each other. And this was loosely based on a strategy developed by General Electric and uh, its CEO at the time in the late 90s, which allowed CEOs and executives to <laughs> apply nearly abusive methods to drive employees to work harder and to measure what was going on. And the basic theory was that once you become dominant in the market share, how do you make sure you stay in control of the market? And the way that you know, General Electric and and the John Chambers, who was the CEO at the time, followed the strategy at the at the as as like many other CEOs, was you set up multiple business units selling the same products to the same customers, and then you compete with yourself, and that way all it the revenue goes to the company, right? And Greg, and we so, saw this. That is, yeah. you know, doing business with Cisco as we have for many years. As Cisco has uh, been a sponsor from various business units, there was animosity that was expressed yes. between different, like switching units, exactly. the Catalyst Group versus mm -hmm. the Nexus Group versus whoever. Yeah. Uh, it was it was a real thing for sure. Real thing. And uh, but now the world has changed, and in general terms, uh, the world now that Chambers is gone and that sort of combative, aggressive sales operation, Cisco's turning much more into a. a a more modern company based around understanding that its workers are its most important tactic. And instead of trying to beat them with sticks and carrots and incentives, it's trying to be cooperative and get them together. Anyway, so what we're seeing is all of the legacy business units are now converging into fewer units. And so what they're now doing is taking the mass infrastructure unit 
and the current enterprise business unit and forging them together under Jonathan Davidson. Now, Jonathan Davidson is pretty well known. He's actually a pretty good guy. I've met him a few times. Seems to really know what he's doing, really sort of has a whole idea. But, you know, over the years, we've seen all of the campus, all of the security, all of the enterprise IT, but this mass infrastructure unit was there to deal business with the clouds. And the idea here was that the cloud companies, you know, the Facebooks, the AWSs and so forth, were all going to be so unique and so specialized that they wouldn't want to do business with, you know, they don't want to be stuck with Cisco's products. And so they set up this, Cisco hasn't been successful with the clouds, the mega clouds. It doesn't sell a lot of product, does sell some, but it's not a significant amount, not compared to the sort of success that say Arista's having or Juniper's having with those companies. Cisco's not doing so great. Certainly they're selling some, but not much. So I think it's sort of a recognition that having them in you know multiple different pieces doesn't make sense. So they'll be mashed together, which I think is good for customers because Cisco's doing you know, getting a very coherent story together around this whole thing. Uh, But uh, what do you think? Well, you just nailed it with coherent story. Mm -hmm. That is part of the challenge of dealing with Cisco and any of these big companies that have done lots and lots of acquisitions where there's products that get subtly rebranded but never fully integrated into the portfolio it's kind of hard to know from a, like if you step back and look at the Cisco sales team, how do they position their products? What do they position for customers? What do you buy? Mm. Um, what do you recommend to them? What's an integrated, fully integrated solution look like? Is it a solution that just got a new graphic put on it that says, you know, uh, that's and such a product by Cisco. And that's really mm. the, the, the roots of the change. <laughs> or is yeah. it you know, a truly integrated product that adds value when the integrations happen and they're done well? it is much easier to tell that cohesion story to a customer and go, yeah, you want to buy this? We, we picked up this company, yes. added mm-hmm. that product, that IP into these other product lines. And so now you're benefiting across the product line from the Thousand Eyes acquisition or the AppDynamics yeah. acquisition, you know, as but it is. Weirdly, That's a good story to tell. AppDynamics, Thousand Eyes, you know, a number of other Cisco business units are still separate. So Meraki is still a separate name. So it's not... Cisco Meraki, it's Cisco Meraki, not Cisco Campus, Cisco Small Business. Thousand Eyes isn't Cisco's visibility and observability product or whatever. Um, it's 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 interesting to see these companies, uh, like Aruba is a part of HP Enterprise, right? Why not get rid of it and just say it's HPE networking? And there's something going on there with branding or stories or something that I don't. Well, part of it's branding, right? A lot of people learned the Thousand Eyes name or they know the Meraki name. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but part of it though is target market. That is the Cisco Meraki customers, pretty distinct from the, the other Cisco enterprise style customers mm-hmm. that are buying Nexus switches or Catalyst switches. They're solving different problems. They're coming in at a different pricing tier. They have different operational model. Um, so why do I need to bring in my Meraki product set and make it kind of homogenous with uh, yeah. a Catalyst line or a Nexus line. And mm. when you have that brand recognition, there is value there. If you retire the Meraki brand or the Thousand Eyes brand or whatever, then you've lost something that customers recognize and identify with a value proposition where they know what they're getting. They know what problem is being solved and why they bring up that brand name. So that is that is the challenge, I think, with uh, with all mm. of this. Does it make sense? I mean, either you're part of Cisco or you're not, and I'm not sure that you know this. This because it makes the it makes these technology companies look more like Disney. Like Disney owns something in the order of 250 companies. On the whole, there's property companies, there's music companies, there's 
you know, gaming companies, and they're mm-hmm. all different names. They're not Disney something. They're often independent brands. And yeah. it's not clear to me what the business strategy is that drives that difference. Now, in Disney's case, it might be just to keep them in small enough chunks so that they stay manageable and focused and not sort of lost in the middle of a big company. Well, but I'm not 100% sure I know the answer to that is what I'm saying. And sometimes it doesn't work. If we look back yeah. at uh, Cisco Linksys, for example, yeah. they they mm-hmm. bought them, tried to, you know, did for a long time sticking the Cisco brand name on top of Linksys gear, which was never fully integrated, never integrated really at all. And eventually mm. Cisco divested Linksys. So yeah, you know, this, this that was on the back play. of an urge to go into but, retail. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, no. right. And if you, again, going back to your question about the business strategy if you just if we forget about the technology aspect of it that you and i are so familiar with and look at it purely business well what is one of the things that could drive uh, stockholder value greg (laughs) and you can look at overall sales overall revenue how do you grow that how do you do that when you've saturated the markets that you're in you get into another market yeah. That's a little bit of what's happening here, but I think we're seeing the reorganization. I guess it. I guess it's another way of having business units that fight with each other for market share, but it also means the business units are focused. On, like it's very easy for employees to know what they do. So if you work for Cisco Meraki, you know you work for that part, and you're not too worried about the rest of the organization of Cisco. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's that, and 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 the competition is trying to drive. You know, if you're going back to the old GE strategy here, which which I guess what we're mm. seeing is Cisco's walking away from that, and you know, going mm. more towards uh, organizing all the BUs in a way that aligns products so that mm. it's easier to present to the customer what's going on. There should be um, a synergy here. There should be an opportunity now if the BUs within Cisco are not looking at each other as competition where they can get wins from each other, exchanging of technical knowledge, deeper integrations of the product set, because they're not fighting with each other. They're trying to figure out how to take all of this intellectual property that they've got, all mm-hmm. these software and hardware products that they've got, and do something better with them. Yeah. Uh, and and if they're bringing them under a, a, a manager, um, someone who's got the vision for what the BU can do, yeah. And is, a, is it feels an effective like, leader there. That yeah, I think what you're saying is what I what you're summarizing is what I was saying, which is if you treat it like a number of small companies, then the people in that team know what they stand for. They know what they sell and they're able to focus on that vision of that just that business unit rather than get lost in the, oh, am I selling a product, but there's this other one. Should I be do you know what I mean? Like well, I, you, I, the point I make, yes, yes, yeah. I, I, and I think that is exactly what happens because it was mostly a stockholder-driven acquisition where it was all about the, mm. the numbers and not the tech as such yeah. versus yeah. Cisco, the technology company that could make uh, products that are greater than the sum of their parts if they get the integrations yeah. right and, and align the visions, which, again, Cisco hasn't historically always done that. Yeah, well, you know, we often talk about Cisco being a supermarket and it's got to have a product in every aisle. You know, this is the campus aisle, and here's our Wi-Fi high end, Wi-Fi low end. Uh, and, and, and wouldn't it be interesting if they create better products rather than a supermarket of individual products? Is the point, and yeah. that's what this feels like. This is driving does, towards yeah, to me. Mean. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Avaya bankruptcy is pending again. Uh, yes. We haven't talked about Avaya in quite some time, but you brought this no. one to the table. What do you think? Well, it just caught my attention. I follow financial news as well as technology news. And Avaya is a name that so many of us in networking are familiar with because of a very long history. And uh, bankruptcy pending is, it's its in theory, you know, that's not, they haven't filed. That's not a for sure thing. It's just the financials are rough. Uh, extreme 
networks had bought the networking business unit of Avaya in February 2021. So I think what we're talking about here with a pending Avaya bankruptcy is what's left of the Avaya that we once that we once knew and, uh, and did a lot of work with back in the day. And I think yes. Avaya, you could call it a call center company these days. They sell call centers mm. and unified comms kind of stuff and a bunch of hardware around uh, conference phones and handsets and headsets and conference room video. And then they build services around that uh, that hardware, mm. most of it. You Collaboration. Know, you, you, collaboration. Call center as a service, collaboration, yeah. right? Unified <laughs> comms, all of that stuff. So and they, you know, Avaya, right, bankruptcy again. Well, they just emerged from bankruptcy not all that long ago. It was just under five years ago. Yeah. And uh, recently, it's last just time it was ugly. because they were saddled up with so much debt. So they were taken private some time ago. Yeah. Um, and then they were saddled up with, I think, over a billion dollars worth of debt, and the private equity paid themselves a handsome dividend, and then dropped it back on the market. Uh, well, and this time that's around, where we're back to. <laughs> that's exactly where we're that. back to. It's it's, it's yeah. more debt. You know, the stock has slipped from ten bucks in May to it's it's hovering. It's down below a dollar <laughs> now. It kind of bounces around in uh, multiples. So here's the thing. Here's the thing that I can't believe. They're turning over two point seven billion in revenue, yep. making a one point four billion net loss. Yeah, and the market capitalization <laughs> of the company is sixty million. <laughs> yeah, and that and that's the problem. It's not that they're yeah. not a, a company that's selling no. things. It's that they just don't have the cash flow to sustain operations because their debt yeah. is brutal. They just borrowed six hundred million more dollars in two different deals. I think there was a three hundred fifty <laughs> million dollar deal and a two hundred fifty million dollar deal to give them six hundred million. Um, and the the terms on that were just friggin' ugly, massive double <laughs> yeah. digit interest rates on that debt. And the yeah. point of it was to service their other debt. That was what, <laughs> that was what they needed it for, just to keep they keep yeah. the lights on and pay off their existing creditors. So I mean, no wonder they got such nasty interest here's rates. A, here's another good that. quote. I read their uh, latest uh, discussion with the analysts with the CEO. And the CEO, the new CEO that just been appointed to try and dig them out of the hole, said, Avaya's subscription contract booking and accounting systems need to be more automated, particularly given the large quantity of contracts requiring manual review. In Q3, <laughs> Avaya signed over 300 subscription contracts greater than 100,000 in total contract value. Each of these contracts required a manual review to determine revenue recognition. Can you imagine? No, they literally no, have can. a system. <laughs> I can. They have a system oh. so old and in decrepit that literally there's a whole manual system to book in uh, subscription revenue that requires manual for each deal, manual revenue recognition for the sales rep that sold it. That's <laughs> that's pretty horrible. Oh. Wow! So, wow! 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 So yeah, yeah. Anyway, keep your eyes out on Via. The where this seems to be heading is. Mm is bankruptcy court again. They yes. have reportedly retained legal counsel for discussions about this. And although uh, the, the CEO is kind of talking a good game, hey, there's there's something viable here. There's something real. And it's hard to argue with that considering the amount of revenue they do push through the company every quarter. <laughs> but not with the debt. They've got like, staggered. Oh, the, the debt is just crushing <laughs> they them. Got, they got, they've got coiled by the private equity people who loaded them up. I think debt is like over $1.5 mm. And as I said, they're turning over $2.7 billion a year have been consistently year on year. So they're not by all, any means in nobody's business. But if you can't make a profit, you're not in business. And if you can't mm -hmm. pay down the debt, you're also not in business. All right. I wanted to, uh, Deloro released a press release this week and they were talking about wireless LAN backlogs pile up to 10 times normal levels. So this is just a press release. Delora, of course, is a mar uh, market analyst. So they analyze the market and make predictions about where the market is going and come up with numbers. You know, the they were the firm that predicted that SD-WAN was going to be $26 billion market by 2018. Of course, it's not even a $3 billion market, but let's not mention that. 
Uh, this process highlights highlights what we've talked about before about the problems in the supply chain specifically related to wireless LAN and what the uh, research analysts there are saying is the wireless LAN market sales are being dragged down by manufacturers' record-breaking backlogs. Now, recent interviews have revealed that lead time for receiving wireless LAN access points has stretched between six months and a year and that supply constraints have shifted, including not just the main Wi-Fi chips, but also secondary or even tertiary components. And with the limited ability to fulfill the orders flooding in, manufacturers will focus on their late 2022 and early 2023 shipments and working down outstanding backlog, mainly orders for Wi-Fi 6. So by the time- I've been wondering how these firms that are getting orders, how can they, what are the rules regarding the accounting? Can they book that as a sale if there's a 70 week lead time or does it have to be- you know, upon delivery or upon shipment or something that uh, they so what I'm get seeing in the revenue. financial discussions and so forth, they specifically call out how much their order backlog is. Now, normally yeah. an order backlog would be a bad thing and the company would be punished. But in this case, everybody's calling out order backlogs. So for example, Extreme is now sitting on $513 million worth of orders, backlog orders, which is something like 71% of their total year sales. Mm. Um, you know, they turn over... So, you know, that's a lot, but it's not a problem because everybody's got the same problem, if that yep. makes sense. So I will say one thing, though, is that uh, I've been following, as part of following the Chinese market things and then always also in the semiconductors market, the semiconductor makers are now starting to report that demand is falling off. So although they're still growing, they're not seeing growth on growth, if that makes sense. And that they are now predicting that they'll have spare capacity by the end of 2023. And some so, of the talk is that the consumer market, especially people bought what they were going to buy, they got their toys, and now life's going back yeah. to normal. Maybe they don't need to buy so much. And so demand. Well, is inflation to fall. in the consumer market means people are slowing down buying Xboxes, PCs, laptops, smartphones. Yeah. I'll make that last phone la, live for another year. Mm. Uh, moving on, space networking. This is a big story. The uh, FCC, which is the US regulatory body for spectrum, um, and also for the telecommunications market there, the FCC has rejected uh, a request by SpaceX to receive a broadband subsidy for $900 million. Now, we talked After about this- After an initial t- improvement. Yeah, there was initially, yeah. they were going to they were gonna get this, but then now that they've done the long-form application, um, uh, the FCC has rejected Starlink, and it was another company too, LTD Communications, I think, also mm. got rejected. Yeah, they, they yeah, didn't like- Yeah, well, the, the LTD one was rejected on the basis that they didn't believe that they could do what they said they could do. Mm. But that was a traditional broadband digging fiber into the ground. That's, But in this case, Starlink uh, was basically, Chairman Rosenwurstel said, the question before us was whether to publicly subsidize Starlink still developing technology for consumer broadband which requires that users purchase a $600 dish with nearly $900 million in universal service funds until 2032. Yeah, I think this she is, also made the point that she didn't like the capacity, that uh, capacity in Starlink's yeah. network is uh, insufficient, and as more subscribers on board, that mm-hmm. uh, capacity is more of a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it, and that's exactly right. She was saying it didn't meet the requirements, and this is what's highlighted under the previous FCC commissioner, Ajit Pai, who was is still widely re- regarded as a bit of a clown and a bit of a fool. <laughs> But yep. <laughs> he thought, it, you know, he wanted to have Elon Musk's SpaceX thing on board and Starlink and, you know, be a hero and all that sort of stuff. And he accepted the proposal, even though they didn't meet the minimum requirements for bandwidth. And even here, like, and as it's called out here, people, the subsidy would help Starlink roll out the network, but then users would still have to spend $600 on a terminal, which is not subsidized. That's not low-cost broadband mm. for rural areas. That is high-cost broadband for rural Very areas. Very much, so, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and then they went on to say, there was two things that they went on to say, which I really enjoyed. Uh, they said that the LEO satellite technology is unproven, basically, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool because it is, right, in terms of a deal that runs between for eight years, from 2022 to 2032, to 10 years, um, and they're seeking to hand out money, like a lot of money. There's actually no guarantees that Starlink will work. And we're all, uh, she particularly called out something that we talked about three weeks ago, which was that Ookla data showed that Starlink speeds have been declining from the last quarter of 2021 to the second quarter of 2022 and mm. ban upload speeds falling below 20 megabits. That was what I said about the minimum criteria. And as the Starlink network gets loaded up, that is as more terminals get into a specific geographic area, the bandwidth has been slowing down. So this is going to be a bit of a blow to Starlink in the sense that um, they needed that money. Like, who doesn't want free money? It, in fairness <laughs> you know? to Starlink, it's not endgame yet because they got a lot more satellites they mean to put up there. That that constellation is supposed to grow enormously, and if that happens, mm -hmm. in theory, that addresses the capacity plan or the the capacity challenge. Mm -hmm. Plus, there is a kind of version two of uh, Starlink satellites going up there that increases their capacity. So I don't. Yeah, early reports are what they are, but we're still in the proof of concept phase. I, you know, as opposed to this is the final offering that Starlink is going to. No, it's uh, it's definitely nah. a work in progress. She Not also that called I'm them arguing out. It needs to be subsidized. No, but. no. And she also called them out for bear having poor communication and not responding properly. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, Fair if enough. you can't lodge your paperwork on time and you have a history yeah. of sort of getting back to them whenever you can be bothered, it's kind of like, it does yeah. feel a little bit like that when I went. But uh, anyway, so just interesting to know that Starlink is struggling in that sense. It was originally, I don't think it's going to be the death of Starlink. I think Starlink's got a great product and it need, but it's going to take some time to prove out whether it can scale. And that's what we've been highlighting in recent mm. months is, if you're going to bet your corporation on it, don't only bet on Starlink. You might want to have – it could be a valuable tool under certain circumstances, but as I've say very often these days, you can't trust one telco, one bandwidth supplier. You need multiple, and you don't want to be just dealing with one telco supplier for your bandwidth because you never know where they're going to go wrong. You need two or three if you can help it. So, well – any other news for the week? We didn't have it. If you've got any that you want to tell us, please send it in. Uh, head on over to packetpushes.net slash FU. You can leave your follow-up there. It's anonymous. If you've got something to say, if we've got something wrong, uh, if you want to let us know something that we should be talking about on the show, or if you want to argue with us about any of the topics, we would welcome you to go over to packetpushes.net slash FU and tell us what you really think. And now stick around for our Tech Bytes conversation with Fortinet on Fortinet's new SaaS offering for managing cloud risk. It's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we talk about managing cloud risk with sponsor Fortinet. Fortinet recently announced its new 40CNP product. It collects and correlates security findings, alerts, and other data from cloud-native services. It analyzes vulnerabilities and looks for misconfigurations and more. Our guide to 40CNP is Lior Cohen. He is Senior Director of Product Management, Cloud-Native Security Products at Fortinet. Uh, Lior, welcome to the podcast. And so let's dive right into 40CNP. What is it? Because when I read about it, it reminded me kind of a, of a seam, but for, for cloud-native services. Is that a useful way to think about it? Yeah, it does collect information from both cloud-native security services as well as from uh, Fortinet uh, cloud security products. But the big difference between uh, 40CNP and a SIM would be that it uh, really provides a resource-oriented workflow versus uh, 
uh, event-oriented workflow that you'll see in a sim. So a sim will kind of get a bunch of events and then correlate between the events and, and events would, would trigger kind of an action. Whereas on 40CMP, you proactively look into your environment and you identify uh, based on the different resources, kind of the, all the different events that are related to that resource, all the current state of uh, security posture associated with that resource. And you correlate all this information in order to prioritize the resources with the highest uh, level of risk. So you can go ahead, dive into these resources and take action to remediate vulnerabilities and mitigate risk. Okay. So what kind of information is it collecting and from what kind of cloud services? Good question. And uh, essentially any cloud security service that's out there. So the cloud providers make these services super easy to turn on, right? Uh, Whether it's a Microsoft Defender or whether it's a a Amazon Inspector, Amazon Guard Duty, just a click of a button and it's there. So we're really looking to collect from the cloud uh, environment all the vulnerability data of the resources, uh, the different threats that are detected uh, through the cloud control plane, the permissions data, uh, sensitive information, pretty much any security data that will cloud provider will provide us and uh, from within the customer uh, cloud account context, we'll collect that. We've built a very flexible data model that knows how to uh, really kind of take all that information, normalize it, and assign it a mm-hmm. uh, consistent kind of risk score. So we're taking all that information and then kind of building that around a graph to represent the risk score for every resource. Okay, so then I get the sort of prioritization of, you know, I've got X number of alerts coming in or problems coming in, but you're helping me figure out these are the ones I should prioritize. Exactly. So we're kind of taking these different uh, security findings, uh, putting them in the context of like these relate to a specific resource. A resource can be like a database. It can be like a, a certain storage bucket. It could be uh, a virtual machine or a container uh, pod. And uh, so all the different findings that relate to this specific resource will be uh, aggregated and correlated into that resource and will impact the risk score for that resource. So you can then say, OK, this resource has more findings that are more important. And I'll definitely be spending more time on figuring out a best way to help and provide my kind of production team guidance on how to remediate the findings that I'm seeing for this resource. So if I'm already using Microsoft Defender or an Amazon or multiple Amazon security services, why would I want another layer on top of it as opposed to just going into sort of the the native console that the AWS or Azure is giving me? Yeah, so a lot of what we've been hearing from our customers is that uh, they have just a bunch of disparate kind of set of tools, uh, and they don't necessarily know how to correlate the information between these tools. And uh, most of them are providing them that kind of event-driven workflow, so it's hard for them to take proactive actions. So many of our customers, they have 40 gates in the cloud, they have uh, 40 web web application firewalls, they would have uh, some kind of a cloud-native a set of tools out there as well for uh, both kind of uh, looking at their vulnerabilities, at threats that are uh, um, seen in their environment, but they don't have a way to look at all these things together. Really what 40CNP helps them do is, is kind of put, collect all that information together, get the kind of best value out of the information they're getting, but really correlate that into resource-specific insights so they can kind of look into that resource and say, okay, this is what action I want to take because, again, it's not like one event uh, that's uh, totally disjointed from others. It's just like all these events coming together mm-hmm. around a specific resource. Okay. So how would I deploy this? Am I essentially spinning up a compute instance in my favorite public cloud and and running this application or is there some other method? 
Yeah, this is a fully SaaS uh, product. So it's okay. uh, running in the cloud. Uh, and essentially what you would need to give it is a very minimal set of permissions to only read uh, the information from your cloud infrastructure. So and only collect information from your cloud infrastructure. So even you don't need to give it to uh, like a very over permissive role or anything in your cloud environment, mm-hmm. uh, super low friction, just kind of let it consume and ingest the data from your cloud environment and from your coordinate tools. And uh, you're off to go and you have a very uh, good, rich view of your overall cloud infrastructure. Okay, so it's offered as SaaS, so I don't have to worry about, you know, setting up the service myself. Exactly. Okay, I just provision the credentials and off you go and start. So you mentioned you're, you're, you're collecting information. Does it, do I need agents on the resources I want to draw data from, or is it streaming telemetry? How is information getting into your SaaS service? So uh, maybe part of kind of the point I mentioned before is that the cloud native security services are, are extremely easy to turn on and enable. And that's why many customers really like them. Uh, we're, we're really taking uh, kind of that benefit and extending it to also uh, the security team. So what often happens is that the production team that's running the workload in the different cloud subscriptions or accounts, uh, they, they'll kind of have a certain um, permission to kind of turn things on in their environment, but they wouldn't be going into an elaborate process of installing an agent. But they, what they would do very easily is turn on a cloud native tool. Uh, and that uh, what we're doing here is we're not requiring an agent. We're actually utilizing the cloud native services that do not require an agent either. Uh Uh, and helping the security guy very easily communicate with uh, the production teams and tell them, hey, just turn on that service. And then we're giving them that level of telemetry. So he gets that telemetry without an agent because he's using the cloud native tools. But then again, all the information that these cloud native tools are creating is consumed by uh, a very user-friendly security operator, security engineer-friendly uh, product, uh, which is a 40 CNP. So he can then kind of analyze, correlate, look at the information kind of a little deeper and then provide very uh, specific guidance to these production teams that have the uh, ability to go ahead and remediate. So yeah, uh, short answer is uh, we do not require an agent uh, and really kind of taking the, the approaches based on like taking the benefit out of the turning on of these cloud native tools. Okay, so let's talk about capabilities then. What what capabilities do I get as a security professional by running uh, 40CNP? So we've spoken with, uh, again, customers and looked at their feedback. And most of the feedback was like where they spend most of the time is on improving their security posture, their security controls in the cloud. And really what 40CNP helps them do is make these decisions of where they need to improve their controls in the most educated and knowledgeable way uh, and most informed way, because again, they get information from uh, their existing investments in 49, 48, 40 uh, web. Uh, they get information from the, again, vulnerability information. They get information from uh, kind of configuration risk assessments. Uh-huh. Uh, they get information from threats in the cloud kind of control plane, uh, they get a very broad set of information. We also scan data for malware uh, in their environment and kind of the connectedness of all these pieces of information into kind of specific actionable insights is what will be like, okay, the security guy is like, okay, I'm sitting in front of this thing. It's all prioritizing the resources that I have ahead of me and I know where to spend most of my time. So what it really, the big value is it kind of saves a lot of time on triage and helps them see, okay, this is the resource that has presents the most risk in my environment. I want to spend the time on figuring out exactly what are the remediation actions my team needs to make on for this resource. 
Okay. I assume that that misconfigurations feature, I think, is good because, you know, there's sort of the canonical example of the uh, Amazon S3 bucket that's just exposed to the internet and you don't want that. Misconfiguration is very important. We're also starting to see uh, permissions is becoming a very important aspect as well. So we're mm-hmm. going to be integrating with the cloud native tools that actually analyze uh, over per- like over permissive roles in cloud accounts. So yeah, pretty much. Uh, and again, more than anything, it's the correlation of things of like, yes, there is this misconfigured bucket that has right access to something, but there's also this resource that continuously writes into that bucket. So I want to make sure like the, the, these things that uh, how they play together have a, ba- a, a very significant impact on my overall security posture and the risk of my cloud infrastructure. And again, then you're also doing that correlation aspects so that if I'm trying to triage something, I, instead of having to go pull, you know, logs or whatever from various sources, it's all right in front of me. And you've also come up with some way to kind of normalize it and give it a, a risk score. Exactly. So what we're doing is uh, in each environment, we're collecting all these information and we have proprietary patent pending risk score algorithm. We're taking each and every security finding alert piece of information that we find, we assign, we put it into a normalized data structure and we assign it a score. Scores are then uh, really uh, calculated together into a normalized score that goes from zero to a hundred. So every, every environment will have a zero to a hundred and you'll always know what are the highest risk or resources in your environment. And you'll be able to also normalize that across multiple different types of clouds, across multiple different types of uh, cloud accounts, and also apply some custom modifiers, such as like if it's a production environment, you may want to apply a 200% modifier. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's a, a business critical application, you may also want to uh, uh, provide and kind of modify it by an additional 150%. But if it's a sandbox environment, you may want to modify and reduce it down to 20% value. So we, we also provide some uh, the ability for customers to do their own customization. And yeah, so it's kind of custom and tailored for their environment so they really can spend time where it most matters to them versus like something very canonical. And it sounds like you are targeting this then for the security team as opposed to say a networking team or even a DevOps team. Totally. And then more often than not, we're hearing the security team are like, okay, we've been told that we have these other uh, cloud environments now to secure and monitor. And they're like, okay, well, what tools are there there? What type of workloads are there, et cetera. And uh, they're, sometimes it's just like they're, they're already so busy and uh, <laughs> hard for them to keep up with things. So it's just, oh, they just got another uh, toy to play with. So exactly for these guys, it's like, okay, here's a, a one tool that can help you have consistent workflows across your environment, uh, but also uh, kind of not go through the struggles of implementing uh, specific tools for each one of your different environments, but utilize some of the cloud native tools or your investments in kind of network security products from Fortinet to p- provide you that consistent view of risk across your different environments. So you've mentioned workflows. Uh, is is the system then saying not only we found a problem, but here's potential steps to remediate? So right now we're not uh, providing that in a very uh, proactive way, but uh, in the same way that we're calculating risk and uh, associating like what are the bigger concentrations of risk to this resource, we're going to, uh, over time, uh, reverse that algorithm and actually say, okay, if you remediate this piece of uh, this kind of source of a bunch of uh, like a high concentration of risk, that will contribute to kind of reducing the risk in the most uh, 
uh, effective way. So we're going to do that over time. But right now, it, it's more uh, like we're, we're still kind of keeping the security guy busy with um, making the best security recommendations for the remediation part. We're just kind of really helping him uh, focus on where it has the most impact on the organization right now. Right. I mean, at this point, with the way things are with multi-cloud deployments, just getting that visibility on what resources are out there, what are the potential risks to those resources, just having that in one place seems like it could be pretty useful. Yeah. And and again, that's most of what we're hearing from customers. But again, also like for each different vulnerability, for each different misconfiguration, for each different uh, kind of aspect here, this uh, VM has access to PI information and it has this permissions for each one of these elements that all together construct the overall kind of risk uh, score for that resource. There's a different remediation action that's needed. Uh, The the ability to kind of bring it all into, okay, here's the one thing that will really impact and remediate risks across all these different categories is still something that we're, that needs uh, to work. But again, most of the time, if you look at it today, that security professionals are spending on is really identifying where they want to spend their time, which is kind of absurd sometimes. Right. So the fact that you're delivering this as SaaS makes me think that I'm essentially getting, you know, kind of one dashboard to look at multiple cloud instances, whether within, you know, a public cloud or across public clouds, is that the idea or is it I have to like jump into my AWS console or then jump into my Azure console, et cetera? We're totally agnostic. So you're getting one dashboard that will prioritize all of your resources across all clouds regardless and across all cloud accounts regardless. You also have a way to group different resources into a single group. So you may have uh, the rare case of you'll having like a single uh, application that runs across multiple clouds, like the data portion is in one part, uh, analytics portion in another part. You can tag them all together, like using a consistent tagging mechanism, and we can group them into a resource group. You'll yeah. even be able to see that resource group across, regardless of what cloud it's on and have a specific score assigned to that resource group. But again, we're totally agnostic in that way of uh, representing and providing you a consistent workload across the clouds. They're all, all resources are prioritized based on their relative um, risk score, regardless of what cloud environment they're at. Uh, and kind of the, the resources are grouped in the best way that kind of you decide that makes the most sense for you. Uh, obviously, over time, we're adding more and more functionality across different clouds. And uh, we've uh, probably, I mean, at, at some point, uh, we'll, we'll get to like full parity across all kind of integration with all the cloud native services across all the clouds. Okay, so let's ask what public clouds it integrates with. We've mentioned AWS and Azure. Is that what I have for now? So in terms of ingesting um, cloud-native security services, right now uh, we support AWS and Azure. So we support Amazon Inspector, Amazon GuardDuty, AWS Security Hub, uh, Microsoft Defender for Cloud, both on the CWPP side as well as uh, uh, on the vulnerability um, assessment side. Um, we provided some custom kind of onboarding uh, modifications that make it very easy and streamlined to onboard uh, these these services on AWS and, and turn them on across your environments. And we're going to be uh, providing similar um, 
kind of ease of use, ease of onboarding enhancements on Azure this year as well. Uh, right now, uh, the product is also offered through the uh, AWS Marketplace, so it's also easy from a procurement uh, perspective. Uh -huh. uh, and on GCP, is something we're kind of ongoing working on, but definitely plan to um, provide kind of the integration with the Security Command Center and all the threat detection and other capabilities on uh, GCP. One of the most exciting enhancements I think we're going to be adding this year is going to be around uh, the different identity protection and uh, uh, DLP features across all the different clouds as we add this these types of findings into the data model. Well, we're out of time. I think there's probably more we could talk about here. So uh, if we've uh, piqued folks' interest, uh, Lior, where should they go to get more details? Uh, so yeah, uh, for more information, much more information, uh, head out to uh, www.fortinet.com uh, backslash uh, 40CMP and uh, you'll see a bunch of more information. Also access to a uh, free trial on uh, the AWS Marketplace. Okay, that's Fortinet.com slash 40CNP. Uh, Lior, thanks for joining us. And always thanks to Fortinet for sponsoring Packet Pushers. Sponsorship enables us to do what we do, which includes a network of free technical podcasts along with our community blog. You can find it all at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, hear us on Spotify. And if you'd be so kind, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.